Kitty Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Scott Giacopo. Scott is the director of National Shelter Outreach for Best Friends Animal Society and oversees the development of life-saving efficacy and sustainability for animal welfare partners across the United States. Through Best Friends Shelter Outreach Program, Scott provides leadership and hands-on training for strategic shelter partners, conducts professional shelter operations and field assessments, and leads progressive humane trainings for animal control agencies and officers. In his current role, Scott champions a collaborative approach to partnership and believes that each animal welfare organization, along with the community it serves, is unique and deserving of support that speaks to its individual needs. Prior to joining Best Friends, Scott was Chief of Animal Field Services for the District of Columbia for 10 years, overseeing all animal control and cruelty investigations team members for Humane Rescue Alliance. In this role, he designed and implemented a number of successful community-based programs, helped draft and secure critical animal protection legislation, and represented the organization as a speaker at various regional and national events. While there, he and his team also established a trap new to return program that garnered citywide support and helped reduce the percentage of stray cats killed from 85% to 12%. Scott has been involved in animal protection since 1989 when he became an animal caregiver in Minneapolis. He soon returned to his hometown of Boston, Massachusetts, where he began his career with the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals as the Special State Police Officer for Cruelty Investigations. During this time, he received the Boston Police Commissioner's Citation for Work with Dangerous Dogs and Street Gangs, Certificates of Excellence for Promoting and Providing Community Policing Education from the New England Crime Prevention Partnership, and a Certificate of Appreciation from the Rockingham County's Attorney's Office in the state of New Hampshire for assisting in investigation and prosecution of precedent-setting animal fighting cases. Scott, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? Good, good, good. So for folks that don't recognize Scott's name, I'd highly recommend you go back to episode number 25. Way, way, way back in 2016, Scott was one of the first kind souls who was willing to take a chance in being interviewed by me. So if you go to our search bar on the communitycatspodcast.com website, just put in number 25 or Scott Giacopo, you'll find that first interview that we had there. Since that time, Scott is now with Best Friends Animal Society, and so I really felt it was important to touch base with him and catch up and see all the things that have changed over the last three, almost four years. So thanks again for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Stacey. It's always a pleasure. So as the director of National Shelter Outreach for Best Friends, could you just sort of tell me specifically what that role entails? My team and I basically, uh, we're on what we refer to as the national program, and we provide support to each region. Best Friends has broken up the United States into eight different regions. In each region, there are a team of folks working with individual shelters to uh, accomplish their missions. And we go in and we work with those regional teams to provide these strategic shelters with shelter assessments, field operations assessments, which is kind of unique. We have a whole slew of programs and resources that we work with those teams to help shelters save more lives. 
Since you have gone from past experiences being animal caregiver, working into investigations, cruelty cases, building your way up through shelter operations and management, having a lot of experience working with animal control officers, and now you seem to be even at a more of a balcony position, but you're seeing so much change happening across the country. Are there any key trends that you're seeing happening with regards to community cats across the country? Oh, absolutely. I think that more and more agencies are recognizing that, you know, what we have been doing, and, and particularly with animal control, and I, and I should have mentioned, uh, Stacy, in my role, I, I do focus almost primarily with uh, municipal animal control agencies, and a lot of my work is done in the field with the officers themselves. And what I have noticed is more and more agencies are recognizing that what we've been doing for decades, trapping, removing these cats, doesn't work. It just has not worked at, at any point in time. So more and more agencies now are recognizing that and implementing the community cat programs, doing SNR, TNR, the whole nine yards, supporting community members that are, are engaged in caring for these animals. I'm seeing more and more of it happening, and it's it's great to see. And it's it's showing in numbers of shelter intakes plummeting, shelter euthanasias plummeting. Across the board, it's, it's working. We've yet to find a place where it's not working. It seems like on paper, it would mean more work for the animal control officer, but maybe it doesn't. Does it relieve them? Does it give them an opportunity to offer alternatives? How does it help their job on the streets every day out with the community? How does a good community cat program help with an animal control officer's job? It has so many benefits. You know, when, when I do these workshops, one of the things I always ask the officers in the room is, how many of you have been to the same house for the same problem more than once? And every hand in the room goes up. We know that when we go out and we remove a cat, that we will be back. It happens all the time. And by utilizing uh, an effective TNR program, you are reducing the return visits to that house because what you're doing is you're conditioning the cat. And that's all you're really doing is conditioning the cat not to go back onto the property. Through the use of deterrence and specific strategies, we can make that yard a negative environment for the cat. So the cat wants to go somewhere else. Once we get a cat to stop going into a yard, there goes the nuisance complaints. The the other benefit that it has is what we're realizing is when we remove animal control, when we remove a cat from a yard, we're only making that homeowner happy for a short amount of time, but we're also making the community caregivers, the cat caregivers in the community, resent us. And it's adding to that negative stigma that animal control officers have. Again, by going back and actually utilizing these strategies, you're not only getting rid of the nuisance complaint for that property owner, but you're also building positive relationships with the community cat caregivers who are then more apt to work with you and not resent you and not dislike you and not trash you on Facebook and so forth. So there's a lot of other benefits, you know, so you're reducing your car volume, you are making positive relations in the community, and you're saving lives. And you had mentioned when we were chatting before we hit the record button a little bit about the fact that you come in and you do a lot of trainings for animal control officers and you talk about community cat programs and conflict resolution and that kind of thing. Just as an example, is this a training that, say, is provided to 
a state organization of animal control officers? Or would it be a presentation you would come into one individual town and just, well, I guess a large city could have quite a few animal control officers, but I'm thinking about more of the small community animal control officer. I guess it would be their annual statewide conference or their required training that they have to do. All of the above. I go in anytime Best Friends is implementing a CCP city, because we do have a community cap program where we will go into cities and we'll teach municipalities and we'll provide resources how to implement the program. Anytime we do that, either myself or or my team will go in and and conduct this training for those officers. And when we do, we make sure to invite all the surrounding areas as well. So that's one way. And then, yes, I go to all the state agencies. Like In two weeks, I'm going to Minneapolis. Um, I'm going to be speaking at a conference there. I'm speaking in Arizona in a couple of weeks. I'm doing it at conferences. We're trying to get the word out as far and wide as we can. Do you find that hoarding situations or cruelty situations specifically around cats over the last 20 years, do you get any sense because we're offering hopefully more resources, not necessarily just sheltering, but some support care? and spay-neuter services and that kind of thing. Do you feel that we may be having fewer of those situations than we might have 20 years ago, or is that not the case? Well, I think it's certain jurisdictions where they're they're a little bit more progressive and they're offering these services, but I still think we have a long way to go. You know, there are jurisdictions that don't have the resources to help, you know, those types of hoarding situations in particular. So if you don't have those resources, it tends not to really decline. Or if you don't dedicate what little resources you can in trying to increase those. That way, you are looking at a situation that won't change. If you don't dedicate what you can, it won't change. And I don't know, uh, Stacey, to be honest with you, I think that in some of the larger areas, particularly animal control, is catching on to a lot of things that we've historically not done, like reaching out and doing proactive strategies and reaching out to going into community meetings and talking to people and really being more of a resource, a proactive resource, as opposed to just a reactionary agency that just gets a call, runs out, does it runs to the next call, does it, runs to the next call and does it. And even when we look at hoarding as a mental illness, in the years that I've been doing this, we have changed the way we approach those situations. I mean, I remember my first hoarding case, we went in, we cleaned the guy out completely, took every single animal out of there, you know, and then as it progressed, especially with the Tufts work, you know, the Tufts University, they did their work on hoarding. um, We started looking at it completely different where we would actually go in and leave some animals, but take them out, obviously, you know, sterilize them, vaccinate them, and then help manage the numbers that we felt the caregiver was capable of caring for. But I think that more and more agencies are starting to move in that direction of taking those proactive steps. I think that is fabulous because we've seen this in large sheltering as well as in the conversations that I'm sure you have along with others about the no-kill conversation versus limited admission versus traditional shelter conversation versus you know animal control type conversation. There's so many confusions around what should I be thinking about you without knowing you, basically? And this is a way to open up the conversation in a non-confrontational setting. And I work with a small group out of Chelsea, Massachusetts, and we provide a free vaccination and microchipping clinic that we do in partnership with MSPCA and Chelsea ACO. And it's just, it's a great non-confrontational way to get to know the animals in the community. Pets for Life has their program and, you know, we all want to have a presence in the community without it being reactive, you know, have be very proactive getting to know the folks and the animals in the community and being able to provide support for those animals when they need it and getting to know them today, not necessarily knowing that they need support today, but they may need some support tomorrow. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I think the field in general is progressing very fast. When I first started working in the shelters, we didn't have TNR. It wasn't until people like you and Bonnie Brown came around and, you know, Donna Bishop from the Alley Cat Alliance. What was the name of that? Alliance for Animals. Alliance for Animals. That's right. I'm sorry. I forgot the name. But you all were the pioneers for TNR in Massachusetts. And, you know, I mean, I remember working in the shelter where when we didn't have those programs, those cats were just, they died. Right. You know, there was no... There was no possibility of an outcome for them. And now TNR came around and it changed the landscape. It was a game changer. And now Pets for Life come out. You know, HSUS came out with Pets for Life. And that's another game changer. You know, so I think that the industry is moving forward very fast for the benefit, obviously, for the benefit of the animals. And we're seeing less and less animals dying in our shelters. One thing we were also chatting about, and I'd love to share with our listeners today, is we were talking about best practices. And you worked on a manual looking at different municipalities and different programs all around the country. And they profiled some best practices. And I didn't know if you could share a couple and share with us how we might be able to access this information. Yeah, and the manual is actually free online to anyone to download. And it, it was basically when I first came to Best Friends, we decided that we wanted to put this manual together. Uh, several years ago, many years ago, there was a, a manual from the ICMA that came out on animal control management. And we were looking at that saying, hey, wouldn't it be great you know, if there was an expanded or updated version of that? So we kind of started talking to people around the country who were implementing these you know, new programs, so to speak, or what have you, and who were really really successful at implementing these programs and that showed positive results. So we just started asking them if they could just write a, a chapter, so to speak, an appendix on it and, and just like what the program's all about and how they went about it. And it's everything from diverted intake, uh, managed intake, you know, a lot of, as I mentioned, I, w- I work a lot with municipal agencies and a lot of lot of jurisdictions feel like they can't do managed intake. And because they're, a, you know, open access shelter and they can never say no to an animal, they can't turn anyone away. And and all that. But what they don't realize is that managed intake isn't saying no. It's just saying not right now. It's saying when we'll take an animal in so you can manage the population more effectively. So we have a, a great chapter on how to do that. We have a great chapter on open adoption, on how to do a, a return owner in the field, uh, dangerous dog investigations. I mean, it's just chock full of information from people around the country who are doing these programs successfully. And we wanted to share that with the entire country. And again, we put it together. And rather than you know trying to sell it or, or what have you, we put it up online so that people can download it for free. One of the things I really love the way we did it, and we did this with our community cat handbook as well. We put them up online in individual PDFs. Each chapter is its own individual PDF. So you don't have to download the whole manual if you just want to read about diverted intake or intake diversion from the field. You can download just that chapter, share it with your staff at a staff meeting, talk about it, and figure out how to go from there. It's just, it's a great way of disseminating the information broadly. That's great. And we'll make sure we put the link in the show notes to that so folks can access that as well as that community cat handbook. That sounds pretty cool too. Yeah. So we'll make sure we get those pieces out there. Trying to catch a pregnant cat in time? Are you after that last cat who isn't fixed in your 10 cat colony? Got a wily feral who just won't go into a box trap no matter how much you spend on roasted chicken? How about catching a litter of kittens all at once with their mom? All these tough trapping situations and more can be solved if you know how to use a drop trap. Join Neighborhood Cats, co-designers of the first mass-manufactured drop trap on the market as they demonstrate how to best use this trapper's best friend, the drop trap. 
A Trapper's Best Friend is a webinar presented by the Community Cats Podcast and Neighborhood Cats on Saturday, June 29th, 2019 from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To sign up, go to communitycatspodcast.com. We'll see you there. Are you struggling to increase positive outcomes in your shelter? Are you overwhelmed with high stray intake and low owner reclaim? Do you wish you had solutions to your biggest problems? The Path Ahead provides in-person and remote consulting for animal welfare organizations. Let us help you to increase life-saving by engaging your community and maintaining the human-animal bond. The Path Ahead teaches proven best practices for humane, effective animal welfare, including community cat management, missing pet prevention and recovery, and progressive adoptions. By identifying and addressing outdated and unproductive practices, you can reduce intake and length of stay and keep animals in their loving homes where they belong. Leave the past behind and take the path ahead to success. Visit our website at www.animalwelfaresuccess.com. I'm always interested and intrigued, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this issue about the very strange relationship animal control has within city government. So sometimes they're part of the police department. Sometimes they're part of the board of health. Sometimes they're probably on their own in some little subsection somewhere. And I didn't know what your thought was with regards to animal control's place within the city structure. Oh boy. Anyone who's ever (laughs) sat in any of my workshops is saying to themselves right now, oh boy, here he goes. He's going to get up on his animal control soapbox. Um, Because I say that in every one of my workshops. I have a firm belief and I'm proud to have served as an animal control officer. And I think it's a valuable public safety service. No different than police, fire, EMTs. And I believe that in my heart and I'm proud of that. And I think that all too often animal control, and it's been historic, has been the redheaded stepchild, for lack of a better term, of some other place where the mayor decides to toss it. Police department, health department, sanitation, code enforcement. It's always an afterthought. It's almost always a program of another agency. And it's usually underfunded. Um, It is usually viewed poorly by the community or barely viewed at all. And I am adamantly opposed to putting animal control into one of those categories. I believe that it should be a standalone agency in each jurisdiction, that they shouldn't be reporting to the sergeant of the police department. And that's no disrespect to the police. You know, I'm, I'm a former police officer and I have more respect than anything for police departments. But it's not the role that they play. And it ends up just being a a secondary program. But animal control should be its own standalone agency where the head should have the same authority within the city or the same respect within the city as the police chief, as the fire chief, and so forth. I think all too often, because we are put in that position, that we project that image ourselves unconsciously. We don't come into work every day looking to make that difference, being squared away, being professional, researching constantly training, constantly trying to move our department forward, constantly trying to be part of the community-wide life-saving team. So many animal control agencies have no relationship with the local shelters. They have bad relationships with the local rescue groups. And I'm not blaming animal control for that. It's a two-way street. I think that animal control as a profession needs to really come together and project that image outward, regardless of where they stay in the city, so that they could, it's almost like that, act the way you want to be perceived. If you want to be that person, act like it. 
I'm not saying that officers don't. I know plenty that do, but some don't. And I'm going around the country and I'm seeing, you know, men and women who are dedicated their lives to animal control who are just beaten down by the local government. They don't get the resources they need. They don't get the funding they need. They don't get the support from the community they need. And they're just running around every day, all day, trying to keep their head above water with answering the calls that are coming in. And it's tough. But I think that we all need to take that step to try and change that. And there are a lot of things we can do to change that. Now, one of those things you mentioned to me is every July, there's the Best Friends annual conference. But in addition to the conference, there's a pre-conference workshop of some type that's oriented specifically for officers. Yeah, this year, Best Friends uh, National Conference is holding a series of pre-conference sessions. Day long, there's going to be several different ones, but one is designed specifically for field officers. And it's going to be covering things like using data to allocate resources, how to read and interpret laws properly. There's a workshop on integrating a Pets for Life model into animal control. There's a a whole bunch of things that are going on. Better communications. It's going to be an awesome day-long event the day before the conference actually starts. Oh, that's great. And for folks that might want to find out information about the conference, that's on the Best Friends website, correct? It is. Yes. Yes. And some states do require certification credits, CE credits for animal control. And I'm, I'm going to be working with those states to try and get them approved for, for each state so that if you come from, we'll say, Massachusetts or Connecticut or Texas, where it's going to be, that those workshops will go towards your annual CE requirements. In fact, I'm coming to Connecticut uh, in a couple of weeks and I've worked with Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, Maine, uh, and NACA to to get these workshops certified for CE credits. So you mentioned NACA. I believe you're on their board of directors. What's it like being a community cat guy on the board of directors for Animal Control Officers Association for the national organization? I'm proud to serve on NACA. I'm proud to play a role in what they do. And like anything, we're morphing, we're transitioning, we're changing, we're growing, we're recognizing what works and what doesn't work by looking at programs all around the country. And we actually just did two major changes to our guidelines. One is we got rid of our support for cat licensing. Um, We recognize that it costs more to try and implement. It's unenforceable. So we no longer support cat licensing. And the other one is we changed our stance on community cat management. Our stance used to be that we recognized that TNR did work, but we, we took a neutral stance on it where we felt it was up to the communities to decide what was best. And we recently turned the page on that, so to speak. And we now recognize publicly that trap and remove doesn't work. It never has. It never will. Animal control has been trying to deal with the community cat issue for decades and decades and decades by removing the cats from the location. And it doesn't work. And we're still where we were, if not worse than what we were, you know, when we started the programs. So NACA finally recognized that it doesn't work and that we need to encourage more humane alternatives such as TNR. That's excellent. If folks are interested in finding out more about the conference or the work that you're doing, uh, how would they do that? Well, they can, I mean, Best Friends has, you know, we have a great website with a lot of resources. The The manual's on there as well. Um, people can email me uh, easily at scottg at bestfriends.org. 
And Scott, is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yeah, I know a lot of our listeners probably have a relationship with your animal control agencies if you're not an animal control officer. And I'd just like to say that we really need to start looking at how we can all work together, particularly bringing the animal control agencies into the mix. And I think that a lot of ACOs don't get the credit they deserve in their communities. And coming up, uh, well, in April, uh, we have the National Animal Control Officers Appreciation Week. Um, Hope people celebrated that and um, we're able to help build some more relationships. But I think it's important for us to figure out ways of really coming together in each individual community to help save more lives. One final question for you, Scott. Since you've been in the business since 89, I I hate to call you this, but we're both old timers in this industry, I think. But if you had a magic wand and you could do whatever, whatever you wanted for cats across the country, what would you do? Wow, that's a great question. Um, it would have to be twofold. One would be the community cats, you know, in our communities, outside cats. I would say that, you know, everyone gets sterilized, vaccinated, healthy, and accepted. People don't like community cats generally because they're causing some sort of nuisance. And if people could just realize that those nuisances are so easy to mitigate, we would be in a much better place with community cats. And then the other one I would have to say is cats in shelters. I think that a cat in today's shelter, it's it's not a place for cats. Um, We need to do more enrichment. We need to do more for our cats in shelters. And we just need to keep them out of shelters, basically. (laughs) You know, I think more more people should foster and get cats out of shelters. And the same goes for dogs. But I think dogs, you know, we have so many programs for dogs in shelters nowadays. We have dogs playing for life. And, you know, volunteers come in and they take the dogs out for walks. And they take them out into play yards and socialize them. And very few shelters are actually engaged in cat enrichment. And, you know, the first 24 hours of a cat's stay in a shelter is the most critical. And if we can get in there and start getting those cats to feel safe and comfortable, they're going to fare a lot better in in our shelter environment today. So I think that's, yeah, that's it. Excellent thoughts. So many things there that I hadn't necessarily thought of. I do agree with you. If there's a way of having a cat kept out of the shelter from the standpoint of having the community being able to adopt the cat, being able to get the cat spayed or neutered, vaccinated, supported, as you say, and accepted. I love that word, allowing the community to accept that cat. It's a great visual in my mind. So I just want to thank you for bringing that up. I think that's great. Scott, I want to thank you so much for joining me again today on the show and being a guest. And I hope we'll be able to connect again in the future. Me too, Stacey. Thanks for having me. Join us June 21st through 23rd for a kitten-focused event presented by the National Kitten Coalition and the Community Cats Podcast. This three-day virtual gathering will feature presentations by experts on raising and saving kittens, setting up and managing kitten-centered shelter programs, and more. Early bird tickets are available now through April 30th for just $50, and after that, $75 tickets will be available through June 22nd. So don't wait. Sign up for the 2019 Online Kitten Conference.